0: Welcome to Sermons from San Diego, a podcast of preaching at Mission Hills United Church of Christ. I'm the Reverend Dr. David Barr, but please just call me David. I invite you to listen and come along as we try to follow the teachings of Jesus and the wisdom of Scripture to build a world that is open, inclusive, just, and compassionate. And now this week's sermon. Michael King was born in the second-floor master bedroom of a lovely house on a beautiful street lined with elm and sycamore trees, an oasis in Atlanta where many black middle-class families lived. The house was perched on a small hill set back almost 40 feet from the street, with a covered porch wrapped around two sides and big windows through which sunlight beamed in the afternoon. It was the house his parents shared with the senior pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. The associate pastor upstairs, the senior pastor downstairs, who is also the father-in-law, which is an arrangement I would not find appealing. Now, Michael's childhood was absolutely idyllic in comparison to his father, who was born the son of a sharecropper in a tiny shack, literally dirt poor. His father's early life was brutal, and their survival, a miracle. Through all this, as a teenager, Michael's father saw his potential in becoming a preacher, even though he could barely read or write or even speak clearly. He walked to Atlanta without shoes, and that's where he ultimately met his future wife, Alberta, who made him into the force he became. Her father, A.D. Williams, was a prominent pastor and her husband now his associate. But MLK didn't serve long as an associate. His father-in-law died and suddenly he was the senior pastor of a large church with a good reputation that paid pretty well and he could provide a good life for his growing family. <clears throat> and yet, some, despite some relative privilege, Little Mike, as he was called, couldn't be shielded from indignity. And he learned an early lesson at age six when suddenly the little white boy he played with every evening told him that his parents wouldn't let them play together anymore. Now Mike's name was changed to Martin after his father had a powerful experience in front of the doors to the Wittenberg Church where Martin Luther had nailed his 95 theses. Martin Jr. was smart, and at the end of his junior year in high school, he tested to gain early admission to Morehouse College, and because of that, he was afforded an opportunity to go north with other college students to work in Connecticut for the summer. They were tobacco fields, but he experienced a whole other way to be a young black man in the world outside of the South. Now, with both his father and grandfather as pastors, Martin was probably pressured into becoming a pastor, expected to, but he imagined other callings, like practicing law or a professor. His parents were happy when he called home during his second summer in Connecticut to announce his intention to become a pastor but friends teased that this may have been a preemptive attempt to avoid getting in trouble with his parents for something that had happened in Connecticut rather than a call from God, they teased him. And King described his own calling not as miraculous or supernatural, but that he recognized the central importance of the church in black life, And at age 18, he could imagine a career as a, quote, rational minister, one who dedicated his life to God and justice and new ideas, perhaps on a college campus. These stories and many more are part of a new biography called King, a Life by Jonathan Ige. It's 600 pages and so interesting I devoured it in just... A few weekends. And I especially appreciated the stories that revealed his and his parents' childhood and young adulthood. <clears throat> so upon graduation from Morehouse, Martin made an unpopular choice in the eyes of his father. He chose to go north to a small town in Pennsylvania to attend a predominantly white seminary, Crozier Theological Seminary, which embraced liberal ideas accepted Darwin's theory of evolution, and prepared students to think with a modern mind. I mean, listen to this quote from one of his sermons in the 1950s. Science investigates, religion interprets. Science deals mainly with facts, religion deals mainly with values. The two are not rivals it's not necessarily what you might expect coming from a Baptist pulpit in Alabama in the 50s. Now that pulpit was Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, a small church two blocks from the Alabama State Capitol with a highly educated congregation. His father wanted him back in Atlanta, but he reluctantly accepted his son's desire to go out on his own. So he pulled some strings in Montgomery in a church he thought would appreciate his son as a pastor-scholar, a place that would appreciate his frequent references to philosophers, as often as biblical texts. But a year into this pastorate, things changed drastically. The young preacher with a Ph.D. fresh from Boston University went to a meeting of ministers that was prompted by Rosa Parks' refusal to give up her seat for a white man. The ministers were considering organizing a bus boycott, but who would lead the group? No one wanted to take charge, at least out front. And then they pointed to the new 27-year-old pastor in town with less to lose. It was a huge responsibility to thrust upon anyone, but he picked up the mantle, never... Imagining their boycott would drag out for over a year or that many people would want to call it off to get back to normal, even if normal was wrong and never knowing the full extent of the vitriolic opposition from white residents in Montgomery. <clears throat> Martin Luther King, Jr. grew up in a house perched on a small hill with a covered porch and big windows through which sunlight beamed in the afternoon. He attended the prestigious Morehouse College, where he studied with the best professors and the brightest students. He spent summers away from the soul crushing oppression of the Jim Crow South. He went to an intellectually challenging seminary, earned a Ph.D. in Boston, and envisioned ministry surrounded by books and stimulating conversations. He never expected the life of a prophet. And neither did Amos envision his life as a prophet. Amos also grew up in relative privilege, perhaps a shepherd within the royal household, or maybe the owner of flocks and groves. It's not quite clear. But he was obviously educated during a time when few people were literate. He lived in the southern part of the divided kingdom, and he traveled north to the great marketplaces of flocks and wool. While he was there, Amos observed the moral excesses of the people and the influence on paganism of paganism on their shared religious practices. Reluctantly, he felt compelled to warn the people of impending disaster. He was only a prophet for a few months before being kicked out, but surprisingly, his writings survived. So it was this prophecy of Amos and other biblical prophets that impacted Martin Luther King Jr.'s view of the role of religion in society. Amos claimed God hates religious rituals, that work disconnected from doing good, seeking life. Amos wrote, Hate evil, love good, and establish justice at the city gate. Take away the noise of your songs, but instead let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. They're words that Dr. King quoted often. The phone rang a lot at the King family residence, the church parsonage, between organizers calling about a meeting or opponents calling to harass. Without caller ID or answering machines, you picked up the phone. And so it was one night around midnight after a long night of meetings, a very tired Dr. King answered the phone. It was another racist spewing hatred, but this one was different. It was a threat to bomb his home and kill his family if he didn't leave Montgomery. He said, I sat at the kitchen table with my cup of coffee and was ready to quit. But how could I step aside without appearing to be a coward? And so with all courage gone, he decided to pray Now, Pastor King was a man of faith, but he was more likely to wrestle intellectually with questions of faith rather than turn to prayer. And this is not to disparage him or suggest he wasn't a prayerful man, but it simply at the time wouldn't have been his first impulse and shows how desperate he felt. I'm afraid, he said, to God. I have no more strength and courage. I'm at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. Have you ever gotten to that point too? He said, I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. What do we do with that? We may believe in God. We may pray in church and take our faith seriously, But while some people feel very comfortable turning to God in prayer and can speak about it confidently, for many people, like Dr. King, it would take a lot to conclude, all I can do is pray. For this man of rational faith, it was a real turning point that he felt so discouraged that he would turn to prayer. And I think it's something that some of us, at least, can relate to and for us to be encouraged by, because that's the moment, that's the moment. He heard an answer to his desperate plea, the voice of God, an inner voice, saying, Stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and I will be at your side forever. He said, Almost at once my fears began to go, my uncertainty disappeared, and I was ready to face anything. Now, not that he didn't have fears ever again, And not that he wasn't repeatedly uncertain over the course of the years to come, and not that he was always ready and willing to face anything. But he had been reassured. When you stand up for justice, when you stand up for truth, God will be at your side forever, because that is what God desires over any kind of outward displays of religion. Take away the noise of your songs and stand for justice. But it didn't take away the danger. A few days later, his, bomb, his house was indeed bombed. Now fortunately, providentially, no one was home at the time. When we're sitting at our own kitchen table, when our resolve is almost gone and our way is unclear, when we are afraid and feel alone and ready to give up, we can turn to God too. God is there. And we remember this every year when we renew our baptismal vows, which in the course of the church service we'll do next. Baptismal vows, remembering the moments when our fear of death is overcome by our commitment to keep choosing life, new life in Christ.